In the 1920s, a group of Spanish poets gathered to mark the 300th anniversary of the death of the lyric poet Luis de Góngora, a key figure of the Baroque era. These poets, including Federico García Lorca, Jorge Guillén, and Rafaela Alberti, were joined by other influential figures such as Luis Buñuel, Salvador Dalí, and musicians, sculptors, and even bullfighters. Together they were known as the Generation of 27, and they went on to influence European and Latin American literature. This is Generation of 27, a podcast devoted to the Spanish literary movement and to poetry and translation. I'm your host, Anna Hiller. And I'm producer Mark Pritchard. In each episode, we'll look at a particular work of the poets and writers of the Generation of 27, experiencing the work as a piece of art, of its author, and of its time. Today, Anna and co-host Katja Noyes take a look at one of the best-known poems of Federico García Lorca, Romance Sonambulo. Romance Sonambulo is the fourth poem in Lorca's book, Romancero Gitano, published in 1928. The title is usually rendered as Gypsy Ballads in English, and it draws on the mythos of the Roma population of Spain, primarily in the region of Andalusia, or Andalusia. I should mention that today the word gypsy is a slur. In Lorca's time, the Romani existed on the outskirts of society, never fully integrating with Spanish cultures. Lorca elevates the figure of the marginalized gitano to the symbolic realm of poetry, and the gitanos that appear in the book are stylized figures that are more mythic or symbolic than realistic. In Romancero Gitano, Lorca uses a popular poetic form from the late medieval period, the Romance. Think of medieval troubadours singing of their lost loves and personal adventures. That's the Romance. Lorca reimagines the struggles of the Gitano through the lens of the love-struck Romance, often with deadly consequences and always passionate. Keep in mind that the original romance poetry of the medieval and early Renaissance periods was sung, not spoken. It is not too broad to say that all poetry has, at its root, the oral tradition of sung verses. There are some differing ideas about why the figure of the Gitano was so interesting to Lorca. Part of it is that the the Gitano was truly marginalized in Spain and was lived fully on the outskirts of society. Um, also, there was a certain allure to the figure of the Gitano, um, being that, you know, they were sort of, Gitano culture was a big part of flamenco and, um, how to, how to say, um, could it be almost a little like cowboy culture was seen in America? Mm, nah, it, it's more negative than that. Um, the, I think the important thing, uh, the most important thing to note is that um, the figure of the Gitano in Lorca is implicitly and intrinsically like aligned with his concept of duende, which is uh, a flamenco 
um, sort of imaginary. Uh, the duende is is something that you feel or experience, um, and it doesn't translate well into English. You, uh, I mean, it, duende can be a troll under a bridge. Like it literally means like you know, this sort of semi-evil figure, threatening. But in Lorca's poetry, Duende is more about the darkness uh, inherent in, in human interactions, the darkness, the death, uh, the, you know, f the impulse towards death and the, the way that death and love intertwine. So in choosing the Gitano, as a focal point, really, uh, Lorca is invoking duende, uh, and and the gitano is perhaps the most convenient way to do that. Uh, Lorca felt that duende was something that resided within poetry, and it's something that you feel, and it's also something that flamenco dancers. Um, are said, and flamenco singers are said to have, you have duende. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how you say it. Tienen duende, tienes duende. It's, it's a very high compliment. It means you're full of, full of passion and full of, but at the same time, it's this dark, like, you know, this dark energy that comes from the earth. As one of my professors once said, um, and, you know, she, she made this allusion to, I don't know if she was speaking about Lorca or not, but um, she used to say, Rojo y negro, colores de pasión y de muerte. You know, this uh, red and black, the colors of love and death. And she was very passionate about it. It was, it was great. But um, the other thing that you, you can't overlook, and I would be amiss not to mention, is that Lorca himself was an outsider. Um, Lorca, uh, I think, identified with the the marginalization of, of the Gitano community, um, the Roma population, uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's well known Lorca was himself homosexual and, you know, found himself sort of existing um, on the margins of acceptable Spanish society. And very well-known writer, author, um, poet, dramaturge, but at the same time um, not fully um, included or accepted or um, comfortable with the societal norms. I mean, Spain in the 1920s was living, that was under a dictatorship of Primo de Rivera. There was a lot of hiding that had to be done as a matter of survival. And so I think the identification of Lorca with the Gitano and being on the outskirts, I think that's something that needs to be taken to, into account. What I'd like to contextualize is, is the way we're coming at these discussions. Uh, for me, um, it's, it's one thing to sit down and analyze a poem for what it means. Billy Collins has a great poem about like the way students like try to torture the meaning out of a poem. And they try to, you know, tie down a poem and, you know, beat it to death, trying to find the meaning. 
Instead, what I prefer to do is, is to look at, and I, I like to feel the poetry in my body. I like to say it out loud. I like to feel the poetry like emerge from my throat and come out of my mouth and just let it resonate in me. And I think what's going on with Katya and me when we discuss these poems by Lorca is that there's this resonance where we're, we're just like allowing the poem um, to be and just bounce in between us uh, rather than sitting down and drilling down into like, what does this image mean? Like, what does it mean? It doesn't have to mean anything. It just needs to be and be beautiful. Poetry is about beauty. Poetry is not always about meaning. Anna and Katya got together to discuss Romance Sonambulo in our basement, sitting 10 feet apart and with masks on, on January 10th, 2021. Romance Sonambulo Verde que te quiero verde Verde viento Verdes ramas El barco sobre la mar Y el caballo en la montaña Con la sombra en la cintura Ella sueña en su baranda Verde carne, pelo verde Con ojos de fría plata Verde que te quiero verde, bajo la luna gitana, las cosas la están mirando y ella no puede mirarlas. I have, I have a question right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it sounds so much better in the Spanish? Assonant rhyme. English relies a lot on consonant rhyme. You know, exact rhymes. Um, Spanish doesn't. Spanish, uh, especially this particular form this poetic form, the ro romance, it relies on assonant rhyme, which is the rhyming of two vowels. It's the um, even lines are rhymed where the last two syllables are AA. That ability to have assonant rhyme, um, I think, really smooths out the way it sounds uh, in Spanish versus English. It also simplifies the sound of it. Mm. I think mm -hmm. that's really what it's about, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. that you have this rep repeated ah, 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 ah. And um, it just makes the sound of the poetry um, kind of like a wave. In a way, the poem flows the way it does because, again, of the assonant rhyme, but also just he recognizes that his most potent um, power is uh, the manipulation of language so that it, it wraps itself around the rhyme. But it, I feel when I read Lorca, that he is very, I mean, not that all poets aren't, but he's just so deliberate in choosing images that um, don't waste the rhyme. Hmm. 
like for example in this first stanza the uh aa -A, uh -uh, rhymes ramas montaña paranda plata gitana miralas all of these things so in english that would be branches mountain balcony silver gypsy to see mm -hmm. so it's like it's not just that it rhymes it's that the the rhyme is weighted with image mm -hmm. you see what i mean it, mm -hmm. instead of just mm -hmm. saying any other word there it's the most potent of the images that lands at the end of the line mm. and they all line up mm -hmm. oh i see yeah that that he wants it right at the end right. of each line right yeah i hadn't thought of that before when i was looking at this it's harder in translation to to see it that way like right because really you're not hearing it as clearly and um i'm looking at this translation right now and i'm wondering um i'm wondering if the if you feel like the translator lined it up well um well i mean that's why i asked that question right at first because it just sounds so different in the english because of our percussive right one syllable words and it's just it's kind of punchy but when he says green wind green branches i mean that to me in the english right after go green how i want you green in the first line i think those those two lines capture it for me because it's kind of sweeping me in, right? Mm -hmm. With the sound, at least, of green. Honestly, that's so interesting to me because, so we're reading the, the William Bryant Logan translation, um, but to me, the, the, the original with the El barco sobre la mar y el caballo en la montaña. Oh. It's just like, oh, you're breaking my heart, Lorca. Oh. Uh, but it, the, to me, just the image of just the lonely ship out at sea. Mm -hmm. I mean, he doesn't say lonely, but I just imagine, like, I imagine myself, like, standing at the shoreline mm -hmm. and looking, like, off to my right. And at my right is the ocean. And there's a ship, like, way out there, and it's nighttime. Mm-hmm. And I see this ship, and then I turn my head to the left, and I look up the side of the mountain, and there's this single horse just sort of oh. grazing. Yeah, yeah. Horse on the mountain. But when you said that, see, I hadn't really seen, like, when you talked about the horse on the mountain, suddenly I saw the silhouette of the horse, and I get the image you're talking about. I think that's one of the things that makes Lorca uh, come alive for me is to actually visualize. Mm. <laughs> like while I'm reading, I'm looking at words on a page, but in my mind, like things are just lighting up. When I was a kid, we used to listen to Sgt. Pepper mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds is a great song mm -hmm. for a two or three year old. <laughs> So I mentioned that. Say that. Just say this. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and tangerine trees and marmalade skies. And I could see it just like all in my head. Mm -hmm. And I still see the same images in my head now mm -hmm. when I listen to that song as I did when I was three. 
And it's the same for Lorca. We'll be right back. Yeah, I think just in general for me, I I hear sounds a lot in language. I hear rhythm and sounds. That's my first go-to mm -hmm. if I was going to guess. You know, I'm mm -hmm. less uh, logical, less, you know, what exactly is happening, but what what am I feeling as I hear it? Mm -hmm. But um, certainly the visuals, mm -hmm. especially like when you kind of gave me that hint. <laughs> I'm seeing it. But it's like if you can synthesize those two, if you can mm. take those that, that instinct to hear mm -hmm. like and combine it with, you know, um, just like the first image that, that comes to the top of your head and you can synthesize those two and suddenly you have this synesthetic experience of hearing image. Like wow. I, I think Lorca really facilitates that. Um, I love that. I was trying to think about what motivates me when I write, what is inspiring me, what's like the little engine inside, and, I'm, I, and I just got it. I think it's the combination of imagery all at once, and maybe that's my novelist head. Like I'm thinking, like we've only talked about a couple lines here, but the way I would be writing this you know, I'd be thinking green, branches, sea, mountain, waste, balcony, green, silver, moon, you know, putting all of that, you know, in this first stanza together. Like, what does it mean? How does it reverberate together? As opposed to seeing each separate, I'm, I'm kind of stirring the pot oh, all see. the time when I'm writing. Like, how does this mix? How does this mix? And what is the whole? Does that I make see. sense? Yes. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. I uh, and it's uh, encouraging because I think um, I think sometimes I think that's what poets do is they're they're taking this what when you read you by default read sequentially, right? Mm -hmm. And I think by being able to do that by being able to take a, a short section and look at how certain words and images reverberate off each other. And look at it as a whole rather than as a, se a sequence of images mm -hmm. that's very poetic oh okay and then allowing say like one image to gradually amplify by mm. coming back in looping mm. it back in right for either for emphasis or, or just to expand like each of these images like when they come up again 
they somehow change. I, I feel them becoming more expansive. Mm-hmm. And almost to the point where, like, for example, the color green. Mm-hmm. By the end of the poem, when he's, you know, he says the, the exact same words as the beginning, you have this sense that you've been through the whole world. Mm. You've just come full circle. So when you come to the end of the poem, and it says, Verde que te quiero verde, verde viento, verdes ramas, el barco sobre la mar y el caballo en la montaña, it means something different. Mm. The first time you encounter it, it's, it's completely new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by the end, it's a comfort. Mm-hmm. And I think it, what I hear you saying is like, in your writing, like trying to get everything to work in concert. Yeah. To accrete. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's, that's a poetic impulse. I mean, all writing is poetry to a degree. The reader might be, you know, have to read sequentially, but you don't have to think sequentially. Right. After the first time we talked about Lorca, that's what you kind of helped me see in him, and then also see the possibility in my own writing. Mm. Like, open up, open up, <laughs> you know? Like, just go with that, like, I mean, especially in this poem. Because he... Okay, so we we have the green and the wind and the branches and the ship on the sea and the horse on the mountain. I mean, just in four lines, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and then we come to the woman with the shade around her waist. She dreams on her balcony. Green flesh, her hair green, with eyes of cold silver. And also notice the paucity of verbs. So out of 12 lines, you have four verbs. I think what we're looking at here is something, and I don't think this is necessarily particular to poetry, but I think this is an argument against the, you know, strong verb um, need. Yeah. Because if you can take an ordinary verb and surround it with this lush, cascade of images and commas and Mm. run-on sentences, Mm -hmm. which I wholeheartedly advocate, you have this landscape of, not even a landscape, like you're you're painting something, you're painting Mm -hmm. a scene. Mm -hmm. In Spanish, it it seems to me that um, authors are not afraid to let their sentences just go. They're like, that's why God made semicolons. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, it, it, there's, there's a certain hedonism about that. Like, I get the feeling when I read Spanish prose or poetry and prose, I get this head rush almost because I'm just like, oh my God, these people, like, they are so not afraid of a long sentence, and it's a beautiful thing. To me, this, I mean, in what we're looking at today, it doesn't seem run on. I mean, it seems more minimal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's lush, but, I mean, you know, just the lines are right. so short. The lines are, the lines are so short, but, you know, you have to remember, like, when you're, when you're reading poetry... It's not the line, the line length is there to indicate meter. It's mm-hmm. not there to indicate a pause. 
-hmm. unless there's a period. So, you know, we have three short sentences, slightly longer sentence. Then we get two verses for one sentence, and then we have four verses for one sentence, punctuated by green, how I want you green, and then a three verse sentence. But when you get to the part with the, with the shade around her waist, she dreams on her balcony, green flesh, hair green with mm, eyes of cold I silver. See. Yeah. That's where you get into that like, where he's just like letting it, letting it, uh, I, I, I feel like it's, I have this tactile feeling about it where I'm just being wrapped, like just wrapped in this imagery. Mm. And just having it layered on me like warm velvet or wow i'm still um riffing in my mind about the cascade though because i think whether those periods are there or not it is still cascading i don't think yes. it, it interrupts the flow so i'm i'm still with you mm -hmm. whether we call it a run-on sentence or not it's it is cascading i mean it's it cascading does images so yeah I know I've said this word already like probably 15 times but lush it's mm -hmm. just lush and Especially when we're, I guess that's the word that's popping to mind because the poem is about the color green and I mm -hmm. associate lush with, with green. So the, the next stanza, big hoar frost stars. I mean, it starts the same, green, how I want you green. Big hoar frost stars come with a fish of shadow that opens the road of dawn. Okay. Fig tree rubs its wind with the sandpaper of its branches. I remember liking that mm. when I first read it, the, this poem, the first time. And the forest, cunning cat, bristles its bristle fibers. It, is the the sandpaper of its branches accurate to the Spanish? Somehow that just that that's a weird. You would want your translation to capture. Um, with some fidelity, both the language, the literal meaning of the language and the figurative. Mm, mm -hmm. But then here's the problem. <laughs> then you have to decide, do you also want to capture the, uh, the, the formal aspects? Do you also right. want to have eight syllable lines? Do you also want to try to rhyme the ends mm -hmm. of the, you know, the um, even numbered verses. Like, do mm -hmm. you want, how, how, how far do you want to take your fidelity? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But because of the, I think because of the economy of the verses, I think this translator, judging by what I'm reading right now, felt that there was something about the, the structure of fish of shadow, road of dawn, that needed to be preserved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you could get a little bit more creative with it. Uh, I'm going to ask you, what, which jumps out at you more when you read The Fish of Shadow? Like, the fish part or the shadow part? <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Well, at first it was shadow, but because I probably w wasn't able to wrap my head around both of them together, but then it was like a puzzle. What is the fish of shadow? And then alongside um, the road of dawn and alongside the fig tree rubs its wind. So the wind isn't rubbing the fi fig tree, but the fig tree is rubbing mm -hmm. its wind. So that's an interesting combination. And the forest is a cunning cat. You know, mm -hmm. so I, I'm interested in just like the puzzle of each of those mm -hmm. images mm -hmm. or not so much images, but phrases like how do they fit together? What's well, a fish of shadow? You know, Lorco is also a, a playwright. You can look at these first two stanzas as scene setting. And it's in this painting like he's literally like painting you a scene to you know everything you need to visualize what's about to happen oh i see what you mean yeah. You're, yeah he's he's painting the background mm -hmm. and then he's he's drawing you deeper in so now that we've we have our first character we have um so we have the woman that's our first character right mm -hmm. and we pull back just a little bit and then there are these huge, you know, these stars made of frost in the sky. So you can just imagine this woman out on her balcony. And then we pull back and we see the, the stars, the frosty stars. And we see dawn breaking. Vienen con el pez de sombra what's really going on there is just like the dawn is insinuating itself into the scene like a fish oh. it's just sort of like oh I see so the the fish of shadow it's not about the fish it's about like the way it moves the way the shadow moves into the scene wow I like that I just get this, you know, this waviness coming through, just like the mm -hmm. pez de sombra que abre el camino del alba. And it's opening, opening the night to the dawn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we have the sort of um, la higuera frota su viento con la lija de sus ramas. So then we have the scratchy noise. So now we're getting our sort of acoustic mm -hmm. landscape. Mm -hmm. Y el monte gato garduño eriza sus pitas agrias. So now we have another mixed image, right? Because el monte. So now we're sort of going monte, gato, you know, are these things like, are, are these real or are these just images? Are they, how are they participating? It's almost like I imagine Lorca, like he's painted this scene, right? He's, he's created this backdrop and He's, he's looking upon it. He's like, I like this. Now what? Like, <laughs> I feel like that Pero quien vendrá y por donde is sort of the author reflecting on like, but all right, so I, I have this part of the poem, but what comes next? What comes next? And uh -huh, like he's very much in the moment yeah. with it. He, he himself is yeah. discovering. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. I, I feel like it's a teaser. Mm -hmm. You know, as as a playwright, 
he would be knowing how to build tension, mm-hmm. how to build uh, the audience's interest, how to get the audience to invest mm-hmm. in the situation. Mm-hmm. And right at that point, he asked the question, Pero quien vendrá y por donde? And that's like, but who will come and from where, right? So at that point, it's like he's inviting something new that we can't anticipate into the poem. Who will come? And from where? And that those two questions, pero quien vendrá y por donde? It's, it's, it's almost like he's asking himself that, but it's also he's sort of reflecting back what the ideal audience or reader would be thinking too. Mm-hmm. Like now that I'm in this dark wood, mm-hmm. who's coming? What happens mm-hmm. next? Mm-hmm. And so there's this immense mirroring effect going on here in which the author and the audience and the image and the just like the scene that's being creative is one that incorporates that that, that embraces author, poem, and reader and just like brings everyone together into this one unit and it's so it's such a peaceful beautiful place Mm. so then it it goes into the other characters (laughs) oh yes um my friend, I want to trade my horse for her house, my saddle for her mirror, my knife for her blanket. My friend, I come bleeding from the gates of Cabra. So I remember the first time I read this, I was like, whew, like <laughs> you had to explain later about it being like a play because I was like, what's this voice? Where are we? But now I'm, I'm prepared. Okay, we we like you say, there's a scene that's been set, and and now we got this character writing in <laughs> and speaking and speaking. Yes. So previous to this, it's been. The poet's voice, or the the, vo- the 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 yo poetico, right? The the poetic eye. In the first two stanzas, it's all about the view of the the eye of the 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 speaking voice, the the poetic voice. And then in the third, it's not the poet's subjectivity that we have here. Instead, it's a character, compadre. Quiero cambiar mi caballo por su casa, mi montura por su espejo, mi cuchillo por su manta. Compadre, vengo sangrando desde las, los puertos de Cabra. So we have a certain, like, you know, as we've talked about before, there's like, all of a sudden you have not just a dramatic situation, but a tragic dramatic situation. Mm-hmm. Because he's he's bleeding mm-hmm. and just that that act of of bleeding implies a, a wholly different scenario than what we might have been expecting right right yes a drama mm-hmm. <laughs> a drama has appeared mm-hmm. 
And then we get a second voice. Mm -hmm. If it were possible, my boy, I'd help you fix that trade. But now I am not I, nor is my house now my house. And I remember you saying how much you loved that line. Well, it has, it has, it's always had resonance for me, pero yo ya no soy yo ni mi casa es ya mi casa. A little aside, when I sold my house in Idaho a few years ago, um, I tweeted that out, just that line, after selling my house, which is just like the last thing that I had to do to be uh, away from academia and sort of put an end to that part of my life. I just tweeted, pero yo ya no soy yo, ni mi casa es ya mi casa. I, there's something so, there was something so literal about it in the moment, like, yeah, I just sold my house. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that feeling of, I am no longer myself and my home is no longer my home. Mm -hmm. Is, it's a, it's a sense of un discomfort disquiet mm. with self mm -hmm. it's like I want to help you but I can't because I am not myself mm -hmm. I am out of place my home is not my home the familiar is unfamiliar again you know this is one of those lines that Lorca tends to, to throw at you that I don't I don't really believe you're meant to understand as much as just like feel in your gut and I think he does this from time to time because he wants us to remember that, like, poetry doesn't have to be logical. Poetry is an experience. However you experience that line, mm -hmm. however you feel that line in your body, that's mm -hmm. what it's supposed to mean. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to do anything more than just be with you in mm. your body. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's a good place to wrap it up right now for I... today, our, our first. <laughs> session getting together masked in the garage yes i'm thinking it's that intense this bringing Lorca into a covid pandemic era it and is indeed. have this session with you wow it is indeed especially I, like i tend to like almost hyperventilate when i'm talking about poetry which is not cool when you're wearing a mask but <laughs> but we are wearing masks and we are going to continue with um uh, with this poem in our next uh in our next podcast and get to the heart of the drama, I hope. Yeah, yeah, I've learned so much there's, today. And it'll be fun to continue because there's so much more to learn. Thank you, Madonna. So much more to share and thank you. <laughs> oh my gosh, thank you so much. This is great. the first full episode of Generation of 27, a podcast about the group of poets, writers, and artists of Spain in the first four decades of the 20th century. 
You can read more about Romance Sonabulo on our website, generationof27.net, where we provide links to resources, including the full text and the English translation of the poem. And our Twitter handle is at generationof27. If you're a teacher or student of Spanish and find this podcast interesting, we'd love to hear from you with reactions to our discussions or ideas for other works you'd like to hear Katya and I talk about. Drop us a line at hello at generationof27.net. Thanks again to our co-host Katya Noyce. And thanks to musician and composer Daniel Frias, who does all the music for the podcast, except for, in this episode, a certain song with the initials LSD. Be with us next time. I'm Mark Pritchard. And I'm Anna Hiller. Thanks for listening to Generation of 27.